0: Well, hi everyone. Happy Friday and welcome to this week's Fireside Chat. I'm Lisa Stearns here with Dr. Tim Cross, our Senior Vice President. We're going to be having a somewhat short discussion today on all the issues facing um, our communities and, of course, the Institute, whether that's the pandemic or racial injustice. Um, And we will be taking your questions, of course. Um, And then we are going to enjoy some time with our special guest today. So we'll have more on that in just a minute. But first, remember to keep your audio muted during the chat so everyone can enjoy the conversation. Use the chat function uh, to post any questions, whether it's to our guest or to Dr. Cross. You can put those publicly or you can um, send those privately to me in the chat as well. Do remember that a recording of this session will be made and it will be posted to our coronavirus website, which can be found at utia.tennessee.edu. So we're going to jump right into things. Tim, we are now in phase two. So what is your assessment on how things are going?
1: Well, thanks, uh, Lisa, for kicking us off uh, once again, and, and thanks to everyone for joining us today. Really good to once again see, uh, see folks from throughout the state throughout the Institute uh, on our session today. You know, I think uh, phase two, at least from my vantage point, from my perspective, is going very well. Uh, we're, we're still at a place where we have no positive cases uh, within the Institute. And that's a, a really positive reflection of, of the uh, excellent uh, commitment on, on each of your part to uh, be sure that we do what we can to slow or, or uh, uh, minimize the amount of spread of the coronavirus. I also uh, checked, and we've got uh, 92% plus uh, of our employees have completed uh, the reentry training that we offered starting just last week. Uh, so that's outstanding. And again, a great demonstration of commitment on your part to, you know, it, it really shouldn't be about, well, I've got to do this because the senior vice president said it was important. It needs to be because I need to do this to, to be respectful of my co-workers, of my uh, 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 students, of the people that I serve. So thanks for, for all of you taking the time to, to complete that training. And finally, of course, uh, just a reminder, even though I'm saying things are going great, we've We've all been doing those things we need to do. We've all done the training. Uh, Let me just remind you, we need to stay committed. We need to uh, uh, stick with uh, washing our hands frequently. We need to stick with our face masks. Uh, We need to practice social distancing, physical distancing at all times. Uh, Be thoughtful about attending meetings and events. I I continue to hear about, you know, more and more activities starting to take place, uh, whether it's restaurant reopenings or or more of the the meetings that we're familiar with across the state uh, starting to happen. So I think uh, it's easy to to get a little bit lax and now's not the time for that. Uh, We we need to stay committed.
0: Well, now that we're obviously a couple of months into dealing with this transition due to COVID, uh, I would say many people are experiencing some fatigue and, and distress even. Um, you know, we think, oh, it's great to work at home and do all that, but there, there are just stressors that come with this entire um, issue. And um, what are your thought? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I suspect some of you are like me, feeling like, man, this thing's going on forever. Uh, we, we, you know, first went into this thinking, well, we'll close for a couple of weeks, and then then all will be well. But uh, here we are again, uh, you know, nine, 10 weeks later, and, and we're still uh, having to do all these things that, that uh, we're so uh, unfamiliar with, uncomfortable with. Uh, and it, it is uh, fatiguing, uh, the, the uh, back-to-back Zoom sessions, the, the worry about, uh, do I need to be wearing my mask? And have I washed my hands recently? And when's the last time I cleaned my keyboard or my phone? You know, all that stuff just kind of wears on you. I know we've got a really dedicated and committed uh, group of uh, coworkers, workers uh, and, you know, I don't worry that, that all of this is going to go out the window overnight, but I do worry that uh, the longer this goes on, it just really gets a little challenging to stay motivated, to stay really uh, sort of on top of all this stuff, on top of all the expectations that we have for each of you. Uh, for carrying out your jobs, for carrying out the mission of the university. So I I think uh, while I know we've got a very resilient group, uh, we've got committed individuals, I also think maybe uh, a bit of a shot in the arm about what it takes to be committed, to be uh, dedicated to a vision or a mission might be a good message. And so I think maybe now is a good time to think about that.
0: So to do that, perhaps we have a, a, a special guest that um, might help us in that regard. Would you like to, to say a few words about that?
1: Well, we're, we're really pleased today to, to have a, a great friend and supporter of the University of Tennessee, uh, Mr. Bill Dance, and what I'd really like to do uh, is ask Dr. Ben West, if he would, uh, to help introduce and welcome uh, Mr. Dance to this group. I think I saw Pamela on earlier as well. Uh, so Pamela Dance uh, there in the background, perhaps uh, also. Uh, ben, if you would, uh, would you uh, help this group to to get better acquainted with Mr. Dance? And then uh, we look forward to his remarks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Cross. I've been looking forward to today for a few weeks. You don't get a chance very often in life to introduce someone who's a personal hero, but also a legend and and now I can count as a friend, and and that is Bill Dance. He probably doesn't need any introduction, but I'm going to give him a small one. You know, the best way to describe, there you go, Dr. Cross. (laughs)
1: The
2: the best way to uh, describe Bill may be just to say that he's a Tennessee icon. He's a professional fisherman. He's a TV personality. He's a conservationist. He's an author. He's a teacher, and he's a native Tennessean. Um, He's become perhaps one of the greatest known outdoor sports figures in the world. Um, He started his career in the late 1960s with a passion and idea to become a professional bass fisherman. The problem is that didn't exist in the late 1960s. And so he didn't have to just compete in a sport. He had to help create the sport. And he, along with a handful of others in the late 60s and early 70s, did that. And Bill was the first superstar of that sport. And for several years in the 70s, he was as dominant in professional bass fishing as any athlete has ever been in any any sport. Um, But that wasn't enough for Bill. He he, At the same time, he started uh, a little TV show called Bill Dance Outdoors. It started in a local market in Memphis, but it grew to become one of the most popular outdoor sports shows, not just in the country, but the world. And uh, it's still running today. Those of you that follow Bill, you can see him every every weekend and uh, making it one of the longest running sports shows, outdoor sports shows, one of the longest television shows period in the world. You know, there's, I know there's a lot of people like I am. I grew up in rural middle Tennessee, didn't watch much television, um, but every weekend I would make sure to watch Bill Dance Outdoors. And uh, a lot of people were inspired to spend time outside because of that. Um, Lastly, probably everyone knows Bill's been a lifelong supporter and advocate for University of Tennessee. And and in recognition of that and because of his incredible achievements, the UT Board of Trustees voted last year to award Bill an honorary doctorate from the Herbert College of Agriculture. Uh, Only the second honorary doctorate that originated out of UTIA, the first was Jim Herbert. Um, That award would have been uh, bestowed Uh, at spring commencement 2020, but of course, we didn't have it, and so it's been postponed until we have a live commencement, whether that's this December or next spring, whenever that happens, Um, so we're really happy Bill's joined us today, Um, and we're just going to ask him to share a little bit about his career and his life journey. As Dr. Cross said, it's a great story about someone who has a dream, is not afraid to work hard to achieve it. And uh, his his daughter Pamela's joining us. She's helped us make this happen today. Pamela's also his office manager, so it's a family business. He's got family everywhere, and even if he's not part of the family, if you go see him, everybody's family in his in his place. So, Bill, why don't you just make a few introductory comments and tell us a little bit about how your career got started? How did you how did you become a professional bass fisherman when it didn't exist? And then, how did that lead you to becoming a television star?
3: Okie dokie, Ben, you know, uh, first of all, uh, thank you. And I want to thank the University of Tennessee for their support and making all this possible. Uh, you know, I've always had a dream to uh, wanting to make a career in fishing. And my wife, Diane, always said, you know, if you set goals in life and you work toward those goals, uh, amazing things can happen. Uh, I Always, as I said, I always dreamed of wanting to somehow to get involved in the fishing industry. And as luck would have it, uh, I was fortunate to uh, make this dream come true, a reality of making to hit all four corners from uh, uh, radio, TV, newspaper, uh, magazines. And it all started uh, with a company that I went to work for over in Hot Springs, Arkansas, Cordell Lure Company. And one day I got a phone call from Cotton Cordell, one of the greatest employers I ever had, more like a daddy. He said, I've got an idea, Bill. We need a TV show. And I said, I think that'd be great. It's a good way to promote your tackle, promote the lures. And I've got the perfect person for that. And he said, who is that? And I said, Jerry McKinnis. And Jerry uh, was doing a very, very popular show. He went on to uh, produce the Bassmasters on ESPN. Jerry eventually bought Bassmasters, the uh, uh, BASS. And Jerry was uh, very instrumental. Uh, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today had it not been for Jerry. But Jerry taught me a lot about TV and, I said, uh, you know, I think the per- person is Jerry McInnes. And Cotton said, no, Bill. He said, uh, I've got somebody else in mind. And I said, well, who's that? And he said, uh, it's a fellow you know quite well. And I said, who's that? And he said, Bill Dance. And I said, what? Bill Dance? I said, Cotton? I said, I can't even spell television. Me on TV is like pouring perfume on a pig. I said, it's just, there's no way I could do that. And he said, well, I think you can. He, he said, what I think we need to do is you to research, start with a local show in the Memphis market, uh, go out and try to obtain a, a local station. And what you've learned from Jerry, I think you can do that. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. So I took off with, hopes and dreams of maybe getting a local show in the Memphis market. And I put on my best shirt and sport coat, went to the CBS affiliate in Memphis and went to the program director, director. And I walked in Jack Michaels. And I said, Mr. Michaels, I'm Bill Dance. I want to do a local fishing show. He said, Oh, what? And I told him my format and what I wanted to do. And he said, no, this this is not a market for that deal. But uh, good luck. I left there and went to the NBC affiliate, got the same reply. They came home pretty rejected. And I said, uh, it's not gonna work. And Diane said, don't give up so easy. Uh, you've got a dream. And, you know, if you push hard and you believe, you believe, you know, and you, you can make this happen. Isn't, isn't ABC sports minded? And I said, yeah. She said, well, what about channel 13? That's ABC, that's an ABC affiliate. You hadn't dried them, have you? And I said, no. He said, why don't you give them a shot? So I got up the next morning, and I went out. And I got there at a quarter of 12, and about lunch hour. And I walked up to the receptionist, and I said, uh, I'd like to meet with your program director. And I said, well, he's gone to lunch, but he'll be back around 2. And I said, well, okay. Can I wait? He said, well, that's two hours. I said, I don't care. I said, I'll wait. And so I said, she, I, don't know, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes later, she said, would you like a coat and some crackers? And I said, yes, ma'am. And we got to talking and about 1220, she said, you're in luck, uh, our director is. he came up the back stairs, he's in his office. And let me call and see if he can see you. I said, great. She said, yeah, he's upstairs, just go up the stairs, the third door on the right. I walked down there. It was Lance Russell, who was one of the biggest promoters with wrestling, who really kick-started wrestling in the Memphis market. It spread all over the southeast. Well, I walked down the hall, turned in. He stood up, and he leaned across his desk, took his hand out, and he said, Bill Dance, have a seat. And he reached across, pulled a chair up, and I sat down. And he said, how are you? How's Fishing? Well, he knew who I was from the outdoor editor of the Commercial Appeal, a big newspaper in Memphis, our our only paper, our big paper. He said, how is this? And I said, well, it's hit and miss. And he said, what can I do for you? And I told him what I wanted. and He said, well, that sounds interesting. You know, I used to do a local show uh, for WBBJ in Jackson, Tennessee. And I said, really? So we started, we had something to come. And he said, tell me what you've got in mind. And I told him, I said, I'm gonna do a local show, kind of an educational show, have a local fisherman in the area, promote local lakes, talk about what's current, conservation issues, and blah, 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 blah. He said, That's good, I like that. And uh, he said, Well, I'll tell you what we need to do. We first of all, and mainly we need a sponsor. And I said, Okay. And he said, That's gonna be our, our big hurdle, but I'll help you with that. And you kind of see what you can work on, and we need a pilot, and I said, a pilot, I said, I don't even have a plane, he said, no, no, son, you've got a lot to learn, and I explained what a pilot was, anyway, we, uh, we talked, and he said, tell you what, I'll work on this, let's get together by m- midweek, and I was so excited that he was interested, and in, here was my opportunity to maybe get a local show, and Diane was right, they were sports-minded, and Lance and I had something in common. Well, I left there and went straight to the biggest surplus center in Memphis, fabulous surplus city, 2526 Elvis Presley Boulevard, and the sporting good buyer there was the a guy by the name of Billy Woods. I walked straight in, went right back to him, and I said, Billy, have you ever entered – entertain the thought of doing any TV advertising. And he said, you know, it's funny you ask because a week ago, Sid Swartz, who owned Fabulous Circle City, and I were talking about doing some advertising on TV. And I said, well, listen, would you be interested in sponsoring a TV show? And he said, oops. And I said, mine. He said, Bill, that's interesting. And I said, have you got about an hour? He said, yeah. I said, would you go with me for a few minutes? He said, where? And I said, out to Channel 13 and sit down and talk to Lance Russell. Lance Russell? You know Lance Russell? And I said, yeah. You talking about Lance Russell that does wrestling? And I said, yeah. The Lance Russell that's on TV every week, you know Lance Russell? And I said, yeah. I can't believe you know Lance Russell, Bill. And I said, "Yeah, uh, yeah, I know Lance. He said, yeah, I'll go with you. Will you introduce me to Lance Russell? And I said, yeah. And I said, what's the big deal with Lance? Bill, I can't believe you know Lance Russell. My mother, my daddy, my grandmother, my granddaddy, they all love Lance Russell. Lance Russell, oh my goodness. We watch him every Saturday on wrestling. I said, okay, let's go. And he jumped in my truck and we went right out and I walked up and I said, Elizabeth, uh, is Lance still here? Yes. Let me call. Bill Dance is here. Sitting him up. We went up, walked down the third door on the right, walked in. Lance, this is Billy Woods, surplus city. He's interested in maybe sponsoring Bill Dance Outdoors. Bill Dance Outdoors. And Lance said, boy, you work fast. Sit down, Billy. They talked. We were off and running. He said, Bill, get me a pilot. I started, I shot a pilot. A guy at Channel 3 showed me how to edit. And that was a deal with 16 millimeter film. We didn't have video at that time. And I learned how to edit. And we started a local show at Channel 13 in Memphis. Short time after that, their sister station and an ABC affiliate in Jackson, Mississippi said, would you do one for us? And I said, sure. Well, I had a natural. She went there, with the governor liked to fish, gaming fish was there, boating safety was there. So I could go there once a month and take four shows. Their sister station, WBRZ Channel 2 in Baton Rouge said, hey, will you do one for us? I said, sure. J.C. JCPenney in Paducah, Kentucky, their buyer said, would you do one for us? I said, sure. Well, I was really digging myself a big hole and didn't realize what I was doing. So, I had four markets doing four shows a week, 52 weeks a year. Well, you can figure that out. That's 208 shows a year. And I was just, and then fishing tournaments. And I'd come through Memphis every once in a while and I said, That's where I live. Hey, Diane, see you later. I was just going like this. And that kick started Bill Dance's career. And after a short period of time, I couldn't keep up with it. And I gave my show in Baton Rouge to a good friend, Bobby Meadors, gave my show in Jackson, Mississippi to Ernest Neal, dropped my show in Paducah, kept the show in Memphis, and eventually syndicated Bill Dance Outdoors. But I noticed in TV Guide, they would print Bill Dance Outdoors. And they quit, Uh, they would put outdoors with Bill Dance is what it was and they would put outdoors. And I changed that to Build Ants Outdoors and they would start putting Build Ants instead of outdoors. So we went from outdoors with Build Ants to Build Ants Outdoors. And the syndication went from 50 to 90 network markets. To fast forward here, we rocked along for several years. This is 50, over 50 years ago and we rocked along and the cost of syndication skyrocketed. We moved to cable and we went with ESPN and we blanketed the country. Canada, Mexico, Guam, all over the country. We were in every major network market across the country from New York to Spokane to Seattle to Los Angeles to San Diego to Phoenix, Miami, Raleigh, New York, everywhere. But we didn't hit that demographic that we really needed to hit. We stayed there for four or five years with ESPN, and all of a sudden, a little network over in Nashville, Tennessee popped up called TNN, the Nashville Network, and we hit a home run there. We moved our show to TNN, And the demographics were just perfect. We landed Walmart, who loved bull riding, who loved NASCAR, who loved outdoors, who loved hunting and fishing. That was a perfect, perfect crossover for us. We we landed Walmart as a sponsor, Chevrolet, Perina. We couldn't have hit a better niche and Bill Dance Outdoors just skyrocketed. And for 15 years, we were off and running. And then Vicon bought out TNN, and things changed. And we moved to the Outdoor Life Network. And it rocked along. And then we finally moved to NBC Sports, the Discovery Channel, the Outdoor Channel, and the Sportsman Channel. And today, where we are running 520 airings a year on two networks, 52 weeks a year, we're on the Sportsman Channel with our Saltwater Series and our Freshwater Series, the Outdoor Channel. And there we are, and here I am, still clicking, thank the good Lord. So uh, to take you through that cycle, as fast as I could take you, that, that's where we are. And uh, I'm doing what I wanted to do and is having a good wife to say, don't give up, you can do it. So we're doing it. And we're doing what uh, a dream that became a reality and it's really the only life I know, is uh, being able to not to try to impress people with how many fish we can catch on TV each week, but to try to teach someone how to go about teaching them how to catch those fish. And uh, that's, been, that's been our strength, is uh, being able to teach America how to fish. And that's what's kept us on the air all these years.
2: Thank, thank uh, you. What an amazing career story, as Dr. Croft said. something we, regardless of anyone's walk of life and what they do, people can learn from that. it's a good segue to my next question and you you talked about you know teaching people how to enjoy the outdoors you spent your career in the great outdoors i know from our conversations how important conservation is to you uh conservation of natural resources is a big part of what the herbert college does we've got you know major investments there so could you talk just a little bit share your thoughts about how important it is to conserve our natural resources and also to get out and enjoy it enjoy them
3: well you know we were kind of criticized back in those early days. We, 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 we look at our resource. We look at bass, for instance. A bass, the, the bass is America's number one game fish. And everyone likes to target the bass for one reason. It, it, it's such a challenge to fish for the bass. And the industry loves the bass because uh, the, whether it be the outboard industry, the boating industry, the rod and reel industry, the fishing lure industry, the, the lines, the hooks, Everyone centers in on the bass. Why? Because the bass is such a challenge to fish for. And we started something way, way back yonder about catch and release. And we realized uh, that the bass was just too important a commodity to only be caught one time. And if this fish was caught and handled properly, it could be caught again. And tagging programs prove that fact. But as time passed, we realized that was a good conservation move, but we realized in time that harvesting was a big major part, that we had to harvest, that just too many fish, they were just catch and release, catch and release. We had to harvest the harvesting program, but that was a good move for conservation. But we realized that uh, uh, there were other issues that were important that fishermen would learn and and the importance of pollution, how pollution was starting to affect our waterways. And fishermen took a stand on that. And there were many articles that were written about how pollution was affecting our waterways. And there were issues that were taken before Congress and laws were passed to help with insecticides and pesticides. And those laws were passed to stop Uh, pollution in many of our streams. And a lot of issues that came along to help conservation, and we learned a lot of things as time passed. BASS came along, got stronger and stronger, with more membership, with 2,000 members, with 5,000 members, with 100,000 members, with a quarter of a million members, with with 500,000 members. Their voice was extremely strong. And Ray Scott, the founder of BASS, could take issues against major companies that were polluting our lakes and our waterways and go to Washington and fight these issues. And that helped tremendously. So, uh, and then teaching our, our youngsters, more importantly about these conservation issues. And we're, we're up and running. Our waters today are so much better than they used to be. Our biggest threat today is probably without question and the most detrimental thing that we face today is uh, uh, the silver carp in our waterways. That's probably the, the single most detrimental thing that's going on. It's not pollution in our waterways, It's it's the silver carp and there's so much Going on with that right now from the Mississippi River into the Tennessee River, uh, the Ohio River, the Missouri River, the Illinois River, and all into our waterways and even into our small waterways. There's not a small river in West Tennessee that's not affected by these by these invasive fish. And what they do they occupy so much available water space. They're crowding out uh, our game fish and our forage, uh, our forage population. In the Mississippi River, for instance, where we had an abundance of herring, skipjack, we had abundance of gizzard shad, threadfin shad, where we had an abundance of white bass where well, we had an abundance of sea runs. These things have just moved in in tremendous numbers and moved out uh, our other fish. And the TWRA, Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, is, uh, and especially the uh, Tennessee Wildlife Federation, are working extremely hard in getting funding uh, through Congress uh, to fight these things, to put barriers up along our waterways uh, to help fight it uh, but it is one of the most detrimental things going on right now on our waterway systems and as a result of it uh, uh, that that to me is the most as I said the most detrimental thing going on right now in our waterway system they have moved through the TVA systems from Kentucky Lake through Pickwick through Wilson through Gunnersville and there, there are some reports now, there's a around it, Nickajack, and there's some reports that they're moving into Chickamauga. So it's, uh, that right now is probably the most serious threat that we have. And it's not just uh, right here, it's in other parts of the southeast.
2: All right, thank you. Listen, I know some folks are sending questions in, please keep them coming. I don't know how many we'll have a chance to get to, but we'll get to as many as we can. I just have one more question, and then we'll go to questions from the audience. Uh, Bill, obviously the hat that you have on has been a part of your brand for a long time.
3: Oh, it's been a long, long time, yes.
2: Tell us a little bit about your lifelong association with University of Tennessee, how you're connected to UT. You know, what's your... Well, the hat
3: hat is probably... uh, uh, It goes back, oh my goodness, it goes back to into the 70s. I got a, I used to get phone calls from recruiting and whether it was legal or not, I don't, don't, but some of the recruiting coaches, they would get a recruiter, like Randy Sanders. You remember Randy at UT? Uh, I'd get a call and they said, we've got a recruit that loves to fish, and he's interested in coming to Tennessee. Uh, here's his number, and I, I said okay. And it wasn't, it wasn't my Coach Majors, and it wasn't Coach uh, Battle, and it it would be from one of the recruiters. And it wasn't Coach Dickey. The coach wouldn't call me, but one of the recruiters would call. Me. And here's his number, and I said okay. So I'd call him, and I'd say, Randy, it's Bill Dance over in Memphis. How you doing? Oh, good, good, Bill. Uh, Mr. Dance. how you doing? Fine. Oh, I saw that show that you did such and such, and I said, yeah. I said, uh, Pickwick Lake is, is is just full of good smallmouth like that, but we've got great lakes. We've got 26 major impoundments throughout Tennessee. In Tennessee, we've just, you know, Tennessee is really the smallmouth capital of the South. I said, if you like head smallmouth, uh, ten, the Tennessee River is just an, has an abundance of a good small amount, and over around Knoxville, I know you're looking in Tennessee to possibly come in there playing ball. And uh, you know, Tennessee's got a tradition, and there's so many recruits that go on to play professional ball that leave Tennessee. He said, Yes, sir, I know that. And I said, And the televised games that Tennessee has, I said, Tennessee is such a great school with a great coaching staff, and I said, We've got. We, like we've got great fishing all the way across the state and big impoundments like Dale Hollow and Center Hill. And I was rattling off this, and I said, maybe someday we can get an opportunity maybe to go fishing together. Oh, I'd love to do that. And I said, we'd love to have you at Tennessee, Randy. And he said, well, I'm sure you're thinking about it. And I said, well, do more than that. Come on to Tennessee and play football for us. And blah, 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 blah. And he said, okay. And I said, listen, it was good to talk to you, Randy. Good to talk to you. And then I called Doug Matthews, whoever the assistant coach was, uh, the recruiter. And I said, well, I talked to him. What did he say? I said, well, he's fired up. And uh, and Randy did come to Tennessee. And then he, he he was an assistant coach. I believe he was under – I don't know if he was under Johnny or what coach he was under. but And then he went on uh, to Kentucky, I think. I think he may be at Kentucky now. I don't know where Randy is. But when Randy could go I couldn't go and when I could go Randy couldn't go we never did get that trip worked out but we always kidded about it but it never worked out but those trips uh, it would be that way with several players but I got two two teacaps in the mail one day and I wore that teacap to Ross Barnett and I to, I believe it was a or Texas won Rayburn Reservoir and I won that tournament. And somebody said, that's your lucky hat. And I wore it to the next tournament and I won that tournament. And I said, oh, okay. So then I wore it to the next tournament and I won it. So then Diane said, you know, you look kind of stupid taking a shower in that cap and sleeping in that cap all the time. And I said, yeah, no, but I'm not, I said, I'm not ever taking it off. But uh, anyway, I started wearing that cap and one day I got a phone call at the office and let me back up before I tell you about that phone call. It was kind of a blessing because I didn't have to wear, uh, back then I didn't have to wear a Walmart hat. I didn't have to wear a Mercury cap. I didn't have to wear a string cap. I didn't have to I didn't have to start changing caps like NASCAR drivers. You know, I could just wear this one cap. And I didn't have to keep wearing sponsor's cap, you know? You know, changing caps for pictures, I could just wear one cap. And uh, sponsors didn't complain about that. You know, like having to change caps for sponsors. You see NASCAR drivers, you know, they I have changed all these caps. So I was blessed from that standpoint, I could just wear that one cap. But anyway, I wore it for every picture, every show we shot, for everything. And uh, so anyway, I got a phone call one day in the office and they said, telephone, I said, who is it? I don't know. I said, okay, I, somebody called and tell me a fish story. Hey Bill, did I tell you about that big fish? No, and I appreciate it, but <laughs> you, you got to listen to those fish stories, but everybody's got one and they're proud to tell you about it. So you have to listen to them. So I, I picked the phone up and I said, hello. Hey Bill, I said, hey. You know who this is? I said, I have no idea. Who's the first person that sent you two teacups? I said, Coach Dickey, what are you doing? He said, I'm just sitting here thinking about you, and wanting you to do me a favor if you possibly do it. And I said, Well, you know good and well if I can do it, I'll do it. He said, I'm retiring. His AD at UT, he said, is there any way that you can walk out on at midfield with me during the University of Miami game uh, in such and such date?" And I looked at my calendar, and I had a Mercury promotion that I had to cancel the year before. And I told these people, I don't care what comes up, I will not cancel this year. And and it was advertised and promoted. And I said, Coach Dickey, as much as I would give anything in the world to do that, I booked, advertised, and promoted. I have to be at this promotion. See me holding the telephone. (laughs) But anyway, I said, I cannot. He said, I understand. And it was so sad because uh, Miami killed the University of (laughs) Miami. Uh, the Hurricanes just killed the volunteers in that game. But anyway, it was a sad game. But it was uh, it was Coach Dickey. And uh, he said, every time I see you, you've got that, those caps on. And I said, well, Coach, they're not the same cap because we order those caps. And he says, well, in the alumni catalog, it, it has that cap. It says the Bill Dance cap in the UT catalog. And I said, Well, I appreciate that. So uh, I, it's just been a trademark. I've worn it, worn it, worn it for all these years. So and I know, you could, do, go, I know you
2: could go on and on with I mean, a little known fact. A lot of people don't know that you grew up with a Major's family. Um, really? Yeah, we
3: grew, we grew up with them. Uh, they lived right. Off the square, right at the top of the hill, right next door to my great grandmother, Miss Ann Dance, and uh, she used to cook them. She used to cook pies for them, and of course, John Johnny was a little bit older than uh, than Larry, and of course, Bill was a little bit older. Bill, you know, got died in that wreck, but Larry was more my age. But I tell this story. I tell this story a lot. And I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward it. When Shirley Majors, the daddy, you know, uh, Johnny's daddy, he was coaching the Lynchburg Raiders down at Lynchburg, Tennessee. They were undefeated for four and a half years. Well, he took a job, left Lynchburg, and moved over to Huntland, Tennessee, and started coaching. And the family left Lynchburg, and anyway, Johnny went on and made an All-American at Tennessee, and after his, after he left Tennessee, he, he was playing Canadian ball for a Canadian team. Bill went on to play for Tennessee and a, a tailback who were running single wing. Bill was at Tennessee. Joe was at Florida. Larry was at Sewanee. Shirley went on as a head coach over at Sewanee. Larry was at Sewanee with his daddy. Bob, the younger son, was quarterbacking at Huntland. Shirley Ann, the only daughter, was a cheerleader at Huntland. Elizabeth, Johnny's mother, was in charge of ticket sales at Huntland. And the dog was a team mascot. So everybody in the Majors family was tied in with football. The dog was a team mascot. Shirley Ann was a cheerleader. Elizabeth, Johnny's mother, was in charge of ticket sales. Bob was a quarterback at Huntland. Larry was a quarterback at with his daddy at Swanee uh, coach Shirley was Johnny's daddy was a coach at Swanee and Bill was a tailback at University of Tennessee and then Johnny was playing professional ball at uh, for a Canadian League but Johnny used to come to Memphis and we'd go fishing and uh I'll tell you this quick story uh johnny wasn't much of a fisherman but we'd go and uh at this particular time as a flooded oxbow lakes beautiful lake it was lined with cypress trees and cypress trees grow in the water and these were big gigantic beautiful trees that ben and tim and robert all of us couldn't reach around if we if We all tried to reach around them. just beautiful, massive, towering cypress. And at certain times of the year, they produce a cypress ball. And if you cut that cypress ball in half, it's got four chambers in it with these little seeds in it. And a lot of times squirrels cut those. And if you're a squirrel hunter and you tried to eat a squirrel that was cut in cypress balls, you couldn't eat him Because, I mean, it was horrible. A cypress ball would make a green persimmon taste like sweet and low. I mean, it just, it, it's the most bitter thing you could ever possibly put in your mouth. And so they were, these limbs were hanging kind of over the water. We were fishing, casting around these basically cypress trees. And as we went by, I just pulled one of these cypress balls off, which was about big around as a quarter. And as I pulled it off, John was in the back of the boat. I just pulled it off, and I went like this, trying to turn my back, I just put it in my mouth. and turned back around, and I went like I was chewing it. And Johnny kind of looked at me, he didn't say anything. And we had moved on up the bank a little bit. I reached over, pulled another one off, and I went had my, like this, and I went, and I dropped it down in my hand, and I went, I right off it. and he looked and he said, "Billy, my grandmother used to always call me Billy." and uh, he said, "Billy, what what do those things taste like?" I said, "You like pecans coach?" He said, "I love pecans." And he reached up and he pulled one off and he went on his shirt. he just kind of rubbed it like that. And he went, and his mouth went, and he couldn't, he couldn't breathe. He went, and he tried to spit, and he went, and this green stuff started running down both sides of his mouth, and he went, and he could I mean, it just locked him up, and he went, and he went, landed over the side of the boat, and he went, trying to spit, it looked horrible. And he it, it went, he looked like he was eating green pea, uh, Campbell green pea, split pea soup. And he went. Oh, no. and, he, oh. and he leaned over the side of the boat and got a handful of water and he went. Oh. Oh. Oh.
0: And he went. Oh. Oh.
3: And he said, dirty. Oh. oh, Dirty trick, Billy. Dirty trick, Billy. Oh, dirty trick, Billy. And he says. Oh. I thought you said those things tasted like pecans. I said, no, I didn't, Coach. I said, do you like pecans? And he said, that's a dirty trick. And his nose was running. He said, that's a dirty trick. That's a dirty trick. And about that time, this beautiful butterfly, I don't think it was a swallowtail, this beautiful butterfly was flying around. And he goes, look. And I said, hold your finger still. And he went. And it landed right on his finger. And he says, I said, that's good luck. That's good luck, coach. And he said, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? What it, oh, I still got that taste in my mouth. Isn't that beautiful? And I said, that is, look at it. It's blue and it's red. He said, oh. And I said, aren't those beautiful colors? And he said, yeah. And I said, you know what that is? Those are old Miss colors, And he went, what? <coughs> <laughs> he, blew, he blew that butterfly from here to Jackson, Mississippi. He says, why did you have to say that? Why did you have to say that? <laughs> but I tell you what, he was, he was a great, great guy. And, I mean, a, he was a true legend of Tennessee. Johnny Major was a great, great guy. He really was. And he'll, he'll, he'll always be missed and he'll always be known.
2: <laughs> thank you for that story we've got uh, just maybe seven or eight minutes left i want to get to a couple of questions from the audience and i sure. thought this is a really good one haven't had the chance to talk to you some bill and get to know your background somebody posted this question he said bill i met you at the classic in gunnersville this past march and i told you then that you were the reason i started bass fishing as a kid the question is who inspired you to be a fisherman
3: well, I want to say one thing, Tim. I love your hat. That's a good-looking cap. You got his tea. You got his tea cap on. Uh, you know, I was blessed as a youngster growing up. I had a daddy and a granddaddy that uh, that that loved hunting fish. My granddaddy especially uh, was more of a fisherman than a hunter, and. Uh, I fished with him. I spent a lot of time over in Lynchburg with my granddaddy and fishing the creek. We, we did more moving water fishing, fishing the creeks. And we would go occasionally, we'd go to the big lakes. But he was probably the one responsible for really getting me into it. And then when he couldn't go, I was on the creek probably seven days, six days a week. Uh, Mulberry Creek and uh, I don't believe I ever found anything that I enjoyed more than uh, uh, trying to catch a fish and it didn't matter at that time it wasn't necessarily the bass it was just anything if the creek got muddy I'd fish for 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 catfish and there were times that I uh, enjoyed catching long-eared sunfish or black perch which were rock bass you know but I would say that who really inspired me and and really got me into it was my granddaddy. And we would go, Lynchburg was like many small towns. At midday on Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, the town would close at uh, noon. And everybody would, all the businesses would close and everybody would either, go on a picnic that afternoon or they'd work in their yard or they'd go fishing. And my grandmother and grandfather, granddaddy, we'd always go to the lake. Grandmother would carry a, a quilt and she'd sit under a shade tree and crochet. And uh, uh, granddaddy loved to fish for shell crackers and he bottom fish. And I remember uh, the hardware store in Lynchburg Uh, Motlow Hardware, it was one of the Motlows that uh, tied in with the distillery there, Jack Daniels. had a. That was the only place you could buy tackle back in those days, uh, was hardware stores. We didn't have Walmarts or Bass Pro Shop stores back in those days. The hardware stores were the only place you could buy terminal tackle or or fishing lures. And Motlow Hardware, had several fishing lures, but one in particular lure they had caught my eye was a bait called a jitterbug. It was a frog-colored jitterbug. And I'd go in there and old Tosh, the guy that ran the store, he'd pull it out from under a glass counter and he'd lay it up there and he'd let me play with it and hold it and look at it. And it cost 75 cents. Today that bait is still sold, but I think it's around $4. And I talked so much about it, my grandmother gave me 75 cents and I bought that plug. And I had a metal casting rod and a Shakespeare reel with braided line and a section of cat gut, what we call monofilament today. And uh, I had it tied to it and we went to a lake just north of uh, Lynchburg called Cumberland Springs Lake Big spring-fed lake wasn't big, it was big to me at that time. Anything over ten acres was huge. And grandmother put her quilt out. She sat there and started crocheting. And granddaddy threw out his worms, red worms, on the bottom. And I walked down through some bushes out on a point, and I saw two bass swimming along. And what really kick-started my career, there was a fish about a pound and a half and one about two pounds swimming. Well, my granddaddy really taught me more about the anatomy in fish than he did techniques in fishing. Of course, he talked to me about wading the creek and making noise and always try to work work upstream where if I muddied up the water, it'd float behind me and making sound of the rocks crushing and sound. But he uh, always talked to me about sight and, and the sound. But anyway, when I saw these two fish swimming, I got back with this little metal rod and I thought I made a pretty good cast. I threw in the direction of these two fish swimming and the bait hit about 20 feet from the bait, from the two bass swimming, which was to me at that time, a pretty good cast. But when the bait hit the water, what I noticed, both fish stopped instantly swimming. And I said, both those fish heard that bait hit the water. And when I started reeling the bait, the bait had a wobble of sound and both fish turned in the direction of the bait. And I said, Granddaddy's right, those fish can hear that bait. And as I started reeling it, both fish started swimming toward the bait. And I stopped the bait, the fish stopped. And he always said the bigger fish would be more aggressive. And sure enough, the bigger fish moved ahead of the smaller fish, and I continued to reel it. And when I'd stop, they'd stop. I'd reel, they'd, they'd move. I'd stop, they'd stop. I'd reel they'd, reel, they'd move faster. Well, finally I kept reeling it, and about that time, there was about six feet of the bait, and I couldn't believe what I was, uh, what I was seeing. I was witnessing, the water was just crystal clear. I speeded the bait up, and this bigger fish just blasted the bait. Right then, I witnessed a phony, a piece of plastic and aluminum. This fish explode on this bait. And that was one of the biggest thrills of my life. I said, I can't believe what I'm witnessing. And I started reeling and I reeled him about six feet. I couldn't take it anymore. I threw the rod and reel over my head and I grabbed the line and I just well roped him in. And I got him up on the bank. He took the hook out and just took off running. And I ran through the bushes, ran back up there where my granddaddy was. And I said, look, 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 look at what I caught, And he said, where's your rod and reel? I said, I don't know, but look. And that, that right there, that moment was a turning point in Bill Dance's life. That right there set me on a course of what I'm doing today. That was the biggest single thrill of my life of seeing that, making a cast, uh, and watching those fish actually hit that bait. And uh, all of that putting together what my granddaddy taught me about sound and sight. And uh, yeah, he was the one, the uh, single person that really, really turned turned me around and turned my career into what it is today. Because the, the experience, the challenge, uh, realizing uh, the reason bass uh, are so hard to figure is that uh, they think like a fish, not like a human. And uh, we fish for them uh, because of the challenge they create. You know, there's some days they win, uh, but uh, there's some days we win actually, but most days they win, and that's really the way the good Lord intended it to be. And that's just the fun of it. We, we, we fish for the, the excitement of it, but you know, I've said this lots of times, One of the greatest football coaches of all times was Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers. And Vince Lombardi used to just pound it in his players. Winning is achieved through determination. And you gotta just, you know, winning, you gotta be so determined if you're gonna win. Well, I believe that in, in, in many cases, but I don't care how determined you are when it comes to fishing. When you compete against Mother Nature and her creatures, you're not going to always win. I don't care how determined you are; you're just you're just not going to win every time. I don't care how much experience you have, how much knowledge you have. Uh, you're competing an, against another living creature. Uh, but that's where the challenge comes in. You just it's it's just the competitiveness of of trying to compete against against them trying to match wits with them. They're living in a completely different environment. When you hit a golf ball and that golf ball goes flying and, and, and hooks and goes flying off into the woods, it ain't the golf ball's fault. The golf ball didn't do that on the golf ball didn't do that on purpose. It's your fault because it didn't it didn't go right. When that pitcher throws that ball and it didn't curve and it goes straight across and the batter knocks it out of the park. It's not the baseball's fault. When a quarterback throws a football and he throws it too short and the ball's intercepted, it's not the football's fault. But when you make that perfect cast and you're working that bait, just just perfect. And you're at the right depth. you got the right color. you got the right presentation. And that bass is sitting right there looking at it. Everything's just perfect. If he doesn't open his mouth and bite down on it, you've done everything just perfect. But he's got to bite on it and take it to make it complete. So you've done everything right, but he's got to complete it. So it's a bass. Maybe it's a basketball. It's not the golf ball. It's not the baseball. It's not the football. It's the bass in this situation. So it's just the challenge of uh, of uh, the times we go. So what I try to practice is try to learn something new on every outing, and it's flashback of what. My granddaddy taught me, and I learned something. I said, you know, he, he, I remember something he taught me uh, 60 years ago. And those flashbacks come into play. Uh, I saw something last winter. Uh, a cold front came through, and I was uh, moving along. This buddy of mine, I said, "Look, look right there. And, I mean, a bad, bad dark cloud was coming. The wind was picking up. I said, look right there. And he said, yes, I see it. And I said, we got to get out of here. And it was a bass laying in some coontail moss. And the water was extremely clear. And he was about two feet under the surface. But he had a big black blotch on his soft ray dorsal, just below his soft ray dorsal, a very noticeable spot, just a little bit bigger than a dime. But it had kind of a teardrop running off that black blotch, just a, a black blotch. Which well, is just a part of pigmentation in his in in his skin, and we looked at it, and I said I'm gonna use the boat back, and uh, Jimmy said I don't have my rain gear, and we're fixing to get drenched. I said let's go, I said we ain't got time. Time we get to the dock, and so we took off and we beat the beat it, and it poured, and I said we'll come back in a few days we came back two days later and we back down to the edge of this pad field and we moved up and i said come here look right there and, hit, and that fish had that fish was still sitting there in the same identical spot that same that fish and it was just amazing to me and i said you know sometimes I, my granddad told me, he said, sometimes a fish will sit. I said, how long do you think a fish will stay in a spot and won't feed? He said, in the winter time, sometimes they'll stay, they'll hold in a spot two or three days and they won't feed. And I said, you know, my granddaddy told me something one time, until the weather in the winter, it sometimes it takes two and three days for a fish to re- recover. And especially shallow water fish on a pressure change, it might take two and three days for a fish to, to, you know, to recover from the pressure change. And I said, look at that fish right there. That's the same fish we saw the other day. Jimmy said, it is. It's a, that fish has not moved. And we pitched, we pitched a jig and plastic chunk right over the top of it, And he, he did, he, he moved then. He just dropped right on down into the moss. But that fish stayed, that fish had not moved in two days. And I tell that story and a lot of people say, oh. I said, believe it if you want to, I know it's a fact because I saw it. Mm-hmm. But I remember him telling me that story. Sometimes on a weather change, they don't move two or three days. But I learned a lot of stuff from what he taught me, more about anatomy than technique. But I remember some of the technique things that he taught me. So uh, uh, it's the little things that that you learn from others. Uh, I wouldn't be doing, like I say, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today Had it not been for Jerry McInnes, what he taught me, I wouldn't be doing a lot of the things I'm doing today had it not been for what my granddaddy taught me. I wouldn't be doing a lot of the things, what I've learned from other fishermen that I've met along the way from California to Texas to the Carolinas to Michigan. Uh, Tournament fishing helped me a lot. So to learn how to fish summer, fall, winter, spring, cold water, hot water, muddy water, clear water, from moving water to still water, from a foot of water to 60 feet of water. So we learn uh, from each uh, other. That's what we do. And then by passing it on, and I've been fortunate to be able to do what I've done. And I found that education is the real key. And that's what we've tried to do on Build Inn's Outdoors and Build Inn's Saltwater over the years.
2: Bill, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with but, uh, so there, you know, a lot of people have said they could sit here and listen to you all day. I think I think we could probably sit here for two or three hours and listen to you. Uh, thank
3: you, Ben.
2: We want to respect your time, and I know it's Friday. People probably want to go fishing this weekend. It's going to be a beautiful weekend across Tennessee. Come on, let's
3: go. I'm ready.
2: Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I started this by saying you're an icon. You're an absolute inspiration, uh, and, and we can't thank you enough for joining us today. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Cross make a how, was, how are you miss
3: rich <laughs> she didn't hear me
1: <laughs> thank you very good well lisa I'm um, uh frankly uh it, it's hard to carry on after that uh bill what, hey. what a great uh set of remarks i've got a few points here but uh lisa i think uh for this week let's uh ask everyone if, if you've got questions about COVID 19 shoot me an email uh, uh, you know I'll do my very best to answer them or or pass them along to others but by and large we're in the same uh procedures that we've been following the last couple of weeks so not a lot of changes there so I don't want you to think we're not uh you know still uh concerned about that but I also uh think it's it's really important to obviously uh that we make the most out of out of Bill's time here and thank him for that uh that sound reasonable Lisa as, 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 uh, absolutely yes Thank so you. Let, let me just, uh, Bill. Thank you so much. Uh, really, really great stories and, and great well, way we can apply what you've shared.
3: Listen, I thank I thank you. I thank uh, I thank all of you very very much, uh, Sandy, Lisa, Robert, uh, uh, all of you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, this opportunity to be able to talk to you. And I thank the University of Tennessee for this opportunity. And uh, if you get close, give me a holler. I'd love for you. Ben, it's always good talking to you. And uh, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you, David. Uh, Hey, Bob, I see you there in the background. And uh, Sandy, Miss Fritz, how you doing? Uh, uh, Michael, everybody. uh, Mary Jane, Peggy, uh, Joe, uh, all of you. Dio, how you doing? Uh, and uh, well, I know they, uh, I see Ann you know, back there. Do what intact. you, you. Uh,
1: Bill. If you need a fishing partner, I know you've got all kinds of folks uh, now that you can call on. So you just let us know. Let me just wrap up by, uh, you know, uh, I, I jotted down a few things as Bill was talking. You know, certainly we'll, yeah. learn a lot from him about achieving goals, about staying committed, and uh, you know that's really where I think we're at uh, as an institution. I also noted he talked about when you get successful, sometimes you can wind up digging yourself a hole, creating more work than maybe is really manageable. And, you know, I I know we've all experienced that in our careers, too. So uh, good to think about if you are digging a hole, how can you approach it a little differently so that you can manage uh, those those challenges, protecting the environment, the importance of teaching our youth. I mean, that that hits really close to home uh, to every one of us. And then he wrapped up with some stories that I think are really important to me, and that is learning from those who came before us, but also then uh, applying some new innovations to what we've learned from them, Uh, whether it's an artificial lure, maybe it's the latest uh, way to manage nutrition or the latest uh, latest way to to manage fertility in an agricultural crop, uh, whatever it might be. So, so important to think about the lessons we've learned from those who came before us. Uh, and what we can do, then do to, uh, to advance things from there. So I think with that, uh, we'll wrap up. We'll thank Bill thank you, for a great afternoon. We'll hope to see you out in Memphis again sometime, Bill. Uh, thanks to you, and, and thank Pamela for helping uh, get everything lined up today. Ben, thanks for uh, moderating and, and helping with our uh, presentation today. Lisa, any last remarks? I'll turn it over to you.
0: I think there's not much more to say. Thanks so much, Mr. Dance, and I hope everybody has just a wonderful weekend. Great, thank you. Take care,
3: everyone. Thank you, bye-bye.